Section 19 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 14, Part 2. It was not till some time afterwards, on the release of the crew, that Jack heard of the circumstances connected with the loss of the tiger. She had gone on shore during a fog, when her situation was perceived by a body of Russian troops, who at once brought a battery of field guns to bear upon her, assailing her incessantly also with a fire of musketry. Her captain was suffering from a severe fever at the time, but immediately going on deck, was giving directions for hauling her off, when he fell mortally wounded, both his thighs broken by a round shot. Several of his men were struck down at the same time, and at length the first lieutenant, finding it impossible to get the ship off, hauled down his flag. Directly the Russians ceased firing, boats came off, and the officers and crew, with their wounded captain, were carried on shore. Instead, however, of receiving the rough usage they expected, all the prisoners, especially the wounded, were treated by the Russians with the most considerate humanity, and they acknowledged that, had they been wrecked on their own coast, they could not have received greater attention and kindness than was bestowed on them by their enemies. Nothing, however, could save the life of Captain Gifford, who quickly sank from the effects of his terrible wound. Jack, as well as several of his brother commanders, had long been wishing to take a look at Sebastopol, knowing that the information they might gain would be acceptable to the admirals. The Russian fleet, supposed to be numerous and powerful, had not yet shown itself outside the harbor since its cowardly attack on the Turks at Sinope. Jack talked the subject over with Mildmay. The latter was ready for anything. He especially wished to take a sketch of the renowned fortress, and proposed making some lines on the subject. Joss Green was delighted with the idea, but how was it to be accomplished? They might run in at night, but then, as he observed, as they should see nothing, they would not be much the wiser. They were discussing the matter when the lookout shouted, A SAIL ON THE WEATHER BOW! The vessel's head was turned in the direction of the stranger, and, the wind being light, she had no more chance of escaping than a mouse has from a cat in open ground. She proved to be a brig under Russian colors, though the master and several of the crew were Austrians. They took their fate very quietly, and were ready to give all the information they possessed. The master had frequently been at Sebastopol in former days. He stated that an Austrian steam packet about the size of the tornado occasionally called off the port. Jack got a full description of the vessel from his informant, and he and his lieutenants agreed that they could give the tornado much the same appearance. I have often read in the old war of the way vessels were disguised to deceive the enemy. It is quite a lawful proceeding, Jack observed. Sailmakers and painters were fully employed in shaping and painting old sails to conceal the heavy guns and figurehead, and to alter the general appearance of the ship. When all was done, Jack, with his first lieutenant and Needham, pulled off to a distance to have a look at her, and were fully satisfied that the keenest of eyes on shore would not discover her real character. The crew were also ordered to rig in their working-day clothes, and it was arranged that one watch should go below, while only a few officers in undress uniform were to appear on deck. Highly delighted, Jack steered towards the lion's den. The Austrian skipper was in a state of great trepidation. If discovered, the ship will be inevitably sunk, he exclaimed. No fear, said Jack. 
We'll see what's to be seen, and then steam out again at a rate which will give the Russian gunners no little trouble to hit us. The midshipmen were, of course, in high glee. Tom was only sorry that Desmond was not with them. How he would have enjoyed the fun, he exclaimed. Only perhaps he's finding some still better in the Baltic. That night, few slept out the morning watch, all being so eager to have an early look at the fortress, as Jack had determined to enter the harbor soon after daybreak, when, as might be supposed, the garrison would not have got the sleep out of their eyes. As morning broke, the high cliffs on either side Sebastopol appeared in sight. The Austrian colors were hoisted, the greater portion of the crew were sent below, the remainder being ordered to lounge about in merchantman fashion, while Jack and Joss Green and the two lieutenants, with the Austrian skipper, walked the deck with the perfect composure of men who were well acquainted with the place. Keen eyes were, however, looking out from many a port at the rocky shores ahead as the tornado drew into the land. Two brigs of war were discovered at anchor on either side of the harbor's mouth, and as, of course, they would be on the alert, there was a great probability of their discovering the character of the stranger. A few shot might, however, quickly send them to the bottom, in case they should attempt to stop her. The crew were ordered to be in readiness to spring on deck at a moment's notice, and every man below hoped that that notice would be given. On stood the tornado, no sign being given on board the brigs that her character was suspected. Jack and his officers, as the steamer ran in, had time to count the guns which frowned down upon them from the four forts on either side of the harbor, each with three tiers of batteries, and, what was of more importance still, to make out the number of ships in the harbor. "'I can see three three-deckers and several two-deckers,' said Jack. "'There are at least four frigates,' added Higson, "'and fully half a dozen smaller craft. "'And see over at the point are those mastheads. "'There are four of them, and evidently ships of the line. "'That makes not much fewer than our fleet. "'If they've any pluck in them, they'll come out and fight us, "'and our admirals are the men to give them every chance of doing so.' The tornado had now got as far up the harbor as Jack considered prudent, and she was gradually brought round as if to come about to an anchor, with her head turned towards the harbor's mouth. It had required no small amount of resolution to bring her into that position. At any moment twelve hundred pieces of artillery in those frowning forts above their heads might open their fire, and send their shot which, plunging down upon the ship's deck, would turn her into a sieve in a few seconds. Jack and his officers were equal to the occasion. He and Higson calmly lighted their cigars, and as they walked backwards and forwards on deck, puffed away with might and main, both of them, however, keeping an eye on the forts, waiting for the moment when they might open fire. The ship, having been brought round, glided slowly on for some distance. Then Jack gave the order to turn ahead at full speed, and out she shot between the two brigs, their crews even then wondering what had induced her so suddenly to take her departure. Not till she was well outside them did they begin to suspect the character of the stranger which had paid them a visit that morning, when their signal flags were seen run up to the mastheads, answered by two or three of the outermost frigates. Just then a schooner was seen entering under Russian colors. "'We must take her,' cried Jack. "'The impudence of the act will have a good effect, and show the Russians what Englishmen can dare and do. "'Haul down those colors! Hoist our ensign!' he added. The change was rapidly effected, the signalizing between the brigs and frigates went on still more vehemently, while the former sent a few ineffectual shot at their audacious visitor. "'Keep her for the schooner!' cried Jack. The skipper of the Russian merchantman was evidently much astonished at perceiving the Austrian steamer suddenly turned into an English man-of-war. 
Finding that he could by no possibility escape, he hauled down not only his colors, but his sails. When the steamer, running alongside his vessel, took her in tow, having first removed him and his crew to her deck. He proved, like the first, to be an Austrian. The two skippers mutually condoled each other on their misfortunes. Away the tornado steamed out to sea, but a sharp eye was kept on the proceedings of the Russian fleet. The two brigs were seen getting under way. Presently afterwards, three of the outside frigates slipped from their moorings and stood out under all the canvas they could spread in chase of the daring intruder. The officers and crew had now mustered on deck, and the painted canvas being got rid of, the ship was quickly made ready for action. "'Only let two of them come at a time, and we shall have them in tow before long,' observed Dick Needham, a sentiment which was hardly responded to. The breeze, however, increased, and the frigates came dashing on, keeping pretty close together, at a rate which made it more than possible that they would overtake him. Jack hardly wished that he could have carried off the schooner as a prize, but it was not worth while to risk the loss of his ship in making the attempt. He could not hope to capture even one of the enemy unless he could separate them, and this, as they were favored by the wind, he saw that he should be unable to do. Prudence, therefore, compelled him very unwillingly to cast off the prize upon which the Russians speedily pounced, but only to find her empty. The crew cheered heartily, while many a laugh resounded through the ship as they witnessed the Russians' disappointment and saw the squadron sail back again into port. Jack communicated the information he had received to the admiral. Soon afterwards, the fleet of the Allies appeared before Sebastopol, two or three of their ships having been sent out of sight in order to make their forces equal and to induce the Russians to come out and fight them. The latter, however, knew too well what would be the result to make the attempt. Admiral Lyons sailed away with a small squadron to reconnoiter the shores of Georgia and Circassia. During the trip, he endeavored to persuade Shamal, the far-famed Circassian chief, to cooperate with him in taking the fortress of Sujak and Anapa, two of the only three fortresses still held by the Russians. But the old warrior was not in a condition to undertake the enterprise. Redoubt Kala was, however, attacked, and the garrison, after setting fire to it, retreated. The number of prizes captured by the squadron, which sailed through the Black Sea, sweeping it of every vessel except those of the Allies, was very great. Jack was elsewhere, he having been employed in running several times to Constantinople and back to Kavarna. He at length obtained the wished-for opportunity of visiting his brother at Gevrekler. Taking Tom with him, they landed at the nearest village on the shore, where they obtained horses. The scenery was picturesque and sometimes exceedingly beautiful. They passed through a Turkish village at the base of some low hills. The village consisted of mud-walled and thatched houses built on either side of green lanes bordered by trees, with farmyards attached, and enormous whitewashed dome-shaped clay ovens. The streets all led to a common center, like a village green in England. Here and there were wells, from which girls in oriental costume were drawing water. They were perfectly ready to chat with the strangers had they understood each other's language, but, as that was not the case, they laughed and smiled in friendly fashion. On the level ground, vast cornfields appeared spread out, already yellow with ripeness, and here and there patches of tall guinea grass of deepest green, the fields being intersected by low copses and occasionally rows of trees at greater height, while to the west appeared numerous hills of graceful form covered by waving woods. Far in the south could be seen the blue outline of the Balkan range. At length, mounting the last height, Jack and his companions reached the plateau of Gevrekler, when the white tents of the guards and highlanders appeared, extending far and wide before them. 
Here lay in camp the flower of England's warriors. But, alas, Jack, as he rode through the camp, was struck by the pallid countenances and feeble gait of many of those he met, while from the canvas walls of a large tent came the cries of strong men in mortal agony. He inquired of a soldier near the cause of the cries. "'Some more fellows down with the cholera,' was the answer. "'They've got the cramps, and are precious hard to bear, I know. Had them myself last night, but they passed off.' As the man spoke, his countenance was overspread by a deadly pallor. He sank on the ground, shrieking out. His cries attracted several of his comrades, who, lifting him up, carried him into the nearest hospital tent. A little farther on, Jack came upon an open space where groups were collected round a person acting as an auctioneer, who was disposing of uniforms, clothes, camp, equipage, and even horses and various other articles which had belonged to officers and men just carried off by cholera. It could not fail to have a depressing effect. He almost dreaded to ask about his brother Sidney. Regaining his composure, he inquired the direction of his tent, and was relieved to hear that he had been seen a short time before, alive and well. In a few minutes he found him, seated in front of his tent in a washing tub, which served as an armchair, with a book on his knee and a cigar in his mouth. "'What? Jack? Tom?' he exclaimed in a more animated tone than was his wont in England. "'I'm very glad to see you, for I little expected you would be able to make your way out here. I can't give you a very hospitable reception, but here's a camp-stool for you, Jack, and bring yourself to an anchor on top of my hat-box, Tom. Things don't look as bright as we should wish, but we can keep up our spirits with the hopes of a change for the better. The Turks are tremendously hard-pressed in Silistria, and we are expecting every hour to hear of the fall of the place, when we shall have the Russians down upon us.' I turn out every morning in the belief that before the day is over, we shall be ordered to march and meet the enemy. When the winds from the north, we can hear their guns and those of the fortress thundering away at each other. And any day we can hear the sounds of mines exploding, another music of glorious war. And he smiled faintly. I painted the pleasures of fighting in a very different light, and cannot say that reality comes up to them. However, you must have some luncheon, and we'll ride towards the Shumla where we can hear, though we can't see, what is going forward. As soon as luncheon was over, Sidney ordered his horse, a sorry steed, not quite suitable for Rotten Row. He, with his two brothers, set out for the position of the second division. They had got but a short distance from the camp when they passed a party of men carrying stretchers, on each of which was laid a human form, the rigid outline of the features and feet showing through the blanket shroud. The chaplain followed to read the funeral service, but few except those required officially to attend, followed their comrades to their last resting places. Farther on were two groups of men, six or eight in each, shoveling out the earth for some oblong holes. Silently they labored, no smiles were on their countenances, no jokes passed between them. They themselves might soon be the occupants of similar resting places. Tom shuddered. I have been too much accustomed to scenes like these to take notice of them, said Sidney, we seldom pass a day without the loss of two or three men, and sometimes many more. They at length reached the height towards which they were riding, and on dismounting from their steeds, they could hear the rolling thunder which came from far off Silistria. One continued roar as the garrison poured the fire of their guns on the persevering hosts of Russia. It seems to me as if every man in the Russian army must be blown to pieces by this time, observed Tom. "'So they would if they were above ground,' answered Jack. "'But they are in their trenches, and only occasionally do those iron missiles carry death in their track, 
except when an assault is being made, and then they sweep them down by hundreds. The dispatches Jack had to convey not being ready, he was compelled to remain on shore till the following morning. All night long the low thunder of the siege was heard even more continuously than before. He awoke just at dawn and listened. The wind came from the same quarter, but no longer was the booming sound of the cannon heard. "'It is all over with the brave garrison of Silistria, I'm afraid,' he observed to Sidney, who had joined him outside the tent. "'If it is, we shall soon have a brush with the Russians,' was the answer. "'I hardly hope so, for active service will help to stop the fearful ravages of the cholera. Half a dozen of our poor fellows have died during the night, and the army will be decimated unless something is done to arrest the disease.' Just then the reveille sounded, and the camp was quickly astir. The news spread that Silistria had fallen. The hope that the time of inaction was over was expressed by everyone in the camp. The event detained Jack on shore much longer than he had expected. At length a Turkish horseman was seen spurring towards the camp of the Allies. Officers and men hurried out to meet him, fully expecting to hear that the enemy were advancing. He pointed to the north, however, and an interpreter explained what had happened. He brought glorious news of which his countrymen might well be proud. Prince Paskiewicz, with his shattered hordes, had raised the siege, and was in full retreat from before the brave city he had in vain assailed for so many long weeks. But one of its gallant defenders, Butler, after exhibiting the most heroic bravery and skill, had fallen. Soon afterwards, another important victory was gained over the Russians by the Turks, led by General Cannon and several other English officers, in which also Lieutenant Glynn and Prince Leiningen of the Britannia, commanding some gunboats, took an active part. This compelled the enemy to abandon the principalities. Jack, after this, had to return to Constantinople, where Sir Edmund Lyons and Sir George Brown were busy in preparing rafts and chartering steamers for the embarkation of the artillery and cavalry. On Jack's return, he again paid a visit to Murray on board the Briton. The cholera had been making sad ravages among her crew, as well as on board other ships of the fleet. But strange to say, not an officer had been attacked. Hearing that Murray was below in the sick bay, he sought him there, and found him with two lieutenants, assisting the surgeons and attending to the sufferers, of whom there were at least thirty in various stages of the disease. Murray was standing by the hammock and holding the hands of a poor fellow, a stout, thick-bearded man, whose countenance was of a livid hue. "'It's hard to bear, sir! It's hard to bear!' cried the sufferer, writhing in agony. "'Shall I get over it, do you think, sir?' looking up in the commander's face with an inquiring glance, such as a child might cast at its mother. "'I hope you may,' answered Alec. "'But cheer up. Many have been as bad as you are, and have recovered. Hold on bravely.' The man seemed to grow calmer. Again, however, there came over him a fearful paroxysm of pain. "'Don't leave me, sir! Don't leave me!' he exclaimed, as soon as he could speak. Alec, who was about to go on to another man, again held his hands, pouring some cordial down his mouth, which the doctor handed him. He was soon quiet, but it was the quiet of death, and the commander passed on to others who required his aid. Thus he and the other officers went from hammock to hammock, endeavoring to soothe the pain of those to whom their services could be of any avail. The dead man was lifted out and quickly sewn up in his blanket, with a shot at his feet, to be launched overboard. Three were committed to the deep at the same time. Such were the scenes going forward on board most of the ships in the squadron. The Britannia alone was destined to lose upwards of a hundred men. On board other ships, the officers devoted themselves in the same way, 
and in many cases succeeded, where the medical men might have failed in arresting the malady. It was now known that a descent on the Crimea was to be made, as, however, in the suffering state of the ship's crews, it would be impossible to embark the troops. The admirals put to sea in the hopes of arresting the progress of the cholera. It appeared not to have the desired effect, and many more lost the number of their mess, and fears began to be entertained that the enterprise must be abandoned, when suddenly the disease stopped, not a man more was attacked. The ship sailed back into Kavarna Bay, and soon the operation of embarking the army commenced. The duty was under the charge of Sir Edmund Lyons. By the aid of the rafts he had constructed, which consisted of two boats lashed together with a platform on the top, he got on board the ships destined to carry them sixty pieces of field artillery and the complement of horses belonging to every gun. He then commenced embarking the cavalry to the number of a thousand horses and twenty-two thousand infantry on board the numerous large transports waiting for their conveyance. The officers of the fleet were engaged under him in superintending the operation. During some days a heavy swell set in, which put a stop to the business of embarking the cavalry. The weather again changing, however, the whole of the force was got on board without the loss of a man. Never before had so large a fleet anchored in those waters. There were hundreds of sailing transports, steamers innumerable, both men of war and merchantmen, while above all towered the tall masts of the line of battleships. The French, having only their own infantry to embark, most of whom were taken on board their men of war, got through the process more rapidly than the English. Men of war's boats were pulling backwards and forwards, some carrying messages, others towing off the rafts, while smaller craft of all sorts were moving about in every direction, bringing stores and provisions. It was hard work for all hands, but it was cheerfully and willingly performed. Jack, having to pass near the French fleet, observed a boat full of Zouaves pulling off to a transport. The French steamer was approaching her. The crew of the Zouaves' boat attempted to pass her bows, while those on board her were keeping a bad lookout. The consequences was that the steamer ran right into the Zouaves' boat. The poor fellows, encumbered with their knapsacks and greatcoats, being utterly unable to swim, the larger number, uttering shrieks of despair, sank like shots before help, so near at hand could be afforded them. Unhappily, the cholera lingered among the troops on board the transports, and every day several were launched into their ocean graves, as it was impossible to carry them on shore for burial. Under such circumstances, it is usual to secure shot to the foot of the corpse in order to sink it rapidly to the bottom. In some instances, shot of insufficient weight were used, for though the body at first sank, yet when decomposition set in and gases were generated, it again rose to the surface, and those on board the ships, as they looked over the side, were horrified at seeing the bodies of their late comrades floating about, bowing to them as if in mockery, moved by the undulations of the water. One evening, Billy Blueblazes was on duty at the gangway with orders to report any boats coming alongside. As he was looking out in the dusk, he saw, as he thought, a man swimming and approaching the ship. He hailed, but there was no answer. Still the figure came nearer and nearer, and presently touched the foot of the accommodation ladder. "'What is it you want?' asked Billy. No answer was returned. As in duty bound, he went up to report the circumstance to the first lieutenant. "'There's a Turk or some fellow of that sort has swum off to the ship, sir.' "'but he won't give his name or say what he wants.' "'Higson ordered Tim Nolan, who was acting as quartermaster, "'to go down and ascertain who the man was. "'Arraw, sir! It's not a living being at all!' shouted Tim. "'He's one of the poor fellows who slipped his cable in the cholera on board the transports. 
and the sooner he's made to go back where he come from the better, seeing he isn't altogether pleasant company to living men. Higson was of Tim's opinion, and ordering a shot to be securely slung, he directed Tim to make it fast round the neck of the corpse. This was quickly done, and the unwelcome visitor disappeared beneath the surface. Many other similar occurrences took place to the great annoyance of the seamen, as well as of the soldiers, and made them all the more anxious to get away from the spot beneath which lay so many of their unhappy countrymen. The English fleet having an ample supply of transports, no troops were taken on board the men of war, which were thus left free for action. But the French, having secured only small vessels, their men of war were so encumbered with troops that they were ill-prepared to go into action should the Russian fleet come out to attack them. The information was received with unmitigated satisfaction on board the British men of war, and all hoped that the Russians, gaining courage, would venture from beneath their fortifications, as on the English fleet would devolve the honor of engaging them. To every English sailing ship of war a steamer was attached. The English army was under the command of Lord Raglan. Admiral Dundas had his flag flying on board the Britannia, while Admiral Sir Edmund Lyons, in the Agamemnon, had charge of the transports. To each vessel was assigned her particular place so that there might be no confusion. It was generally believed that the Russian fleet would sail out of Sebastopol and intercept the flotilla, and that they would have to bear the brunt of the fight. The masters of the transports were accordingly called on board the Emperor, the largest of their squadron, where the Admiral's instructions were read to them, and they were asked whether they would willingly take part in the naval engagement, should one be brought on. Having satisfied themselves that their widows would receive compensation should they fall, they replied to the question with three hearty British cheers. Thus were the preparations made for the contemplated descent on the unknown shores of the Crimea. End of section 19